Good morning, Grumlaw. What's up? My name is Ali, and my wife and I, we started a church here in Silicon Valley in California. And just like your pastors, we started a church to reach unchurched people. Uh, Pastor Shay and I, we met three years ago at a marriage conference, and I'm a part of a lot of networks. And man, I, can I just be honest? Your pastor is phenomenal. He is so gifted. I call him two or three times a year to pick his brain. And I maybe you don't know this, but Barna, which does stats on churches in America, they say 70% of pastors in this pandemic are on the verge of quitting because they're so discouraged. I'm not saying that because your pastor is going to quit because he's not. I'm saying that because he would love some encouragement. He will never ask for it. But being another pastor, every time one of my people reach out, it, I feel like I'm walking on water. Can you do me a favor and reach out to your pastors, uh, Shay and Andrea? They are phenomenal pastors who planted a life-giving church. Let me tell you, that is a miracle in and of itself, considering that the last 20 years in America, Christianity has been on this downward trend. And your pastors planted not only a life-giving church, but a life-giving, growing church, even in a pandemic. So you holler back at them, show them some love. Believe me, they are so worthy. They pray for you guys all the time. Uh, if you want to see my family, this is a picture of my wife. Just like Shay, we both married up. I got two little rugrats. One is four, who's Sophia. The two-year-old is Zoe. Uh, They're eating us out of house and home. Please pray for us. Uh, people always ask, Pastor Ali, are you discouraged during this pandemic? How are you handling parenting during this time? And I always show them this picture of uh, Tom Cruise. Let me read you what it says. When another parent asks me how I'm managing my kids' screen time during the pandemic, I just laugh. <laughs> I don't know why, but people always say, Pastor Al, you look like Tom Cruise. I'm not sure if it's the beard or the brown skin. I don't know. But I want to begin by asking you guys a question this morning. How many of you, show of hands, would you say, if you had more money, that would make life easier? It would bring relief. It would, it would bring more joy to your life. Come on, if I gave you $10,000 right now, would you not want that? Would that not make your life better? Of course, everyone would say just a little bit more and their life would be better. Uh, this principle became true in my life when I was about nine years old. I, I, I can't tell, I'm not Caucasian. I, I'm Persian, actually. And I was born and raised in a Muslim home. And Persians, we don't really celebrate Christmas. We celebrate what's called Persian New Year. It's a, the springtime. That's our new year. That's the calendar for a lot of countries in the Middle East. Whereas Americans, we, we celebrate the new year in January. Uh, every spring, there's this two-week festival. We'll go to these different relatives' homes. And it, almost like Chinese New Year, the parents will give the children money. And it was like a joy to get these crisp $2 bills, $1 bills. And they'd give it to me and my sister. But because I'm a really good, spirit-filled older brother, I would always knock on her, like make fun of her. Like, how much money do they give you? Two dollars? Oh my God. Do they not love you? I got 10. Even though I only got two. And she's like, show me. I'm like, I can't. It's in the, it's in the book. If I pull it out, it's going to get crinkled. I can't show you. So every year for several years, I would make fun of my sister that I got more money than her, even though I didn't. And one year, my mom had had enough. Remember, we pulled into the driveway of Bank of America. She whispers something to my dad. He goes to the ATM, comes back, and immediately hands my sister 20 bucks. I'm like, Dad, what's up? I'm the firstborn. How are you going to give her money more than me? Dad, it's not fair. It's not fair. Why? Because we all believe more is better. More is going to bring us more satisfaction. Today, I want to conclude a collection of talks called Bad Advice. And the, the, the theme of this collection of talks is really, I, I want to highlight the godly news by pretending to give you bad advice. Because when you look at our lives, 
when we look at the way that we really live, it often looks like we're taking bad advice. And today I want to speak around this idea how to be dissatisfied. How to be dissatisfied. I want to begin with scripture starting in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Forgive me, I need glasses to read. But godliness, starting at chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Anybody eat food this week? Anybody have spirit-filled food at Chick-fil-A? Come on, it's the the most spirit-filled place in America. Anybody have clothes clothes this week? Aren't you glad I have clothes today? And that's the big idea that most of us in America, most of us, the, the, the communities that we're a part of, the places that we work at, even the church that we're at, most of us know people who have food and have clothing. And yet most of us, if we're honest, are not fully content. Why? Because we believe the lie, aka on how to be dissatisfied. Uh, if I ask you a question, how much money would it take for you to be satisfied? Uh, people would have different answers. Uh, there's a professor at Yale, Dr. Lori Santos, Googler, amazing professor, does groundbreaking work. She's been studying this topic for several years now. And she's been asking people with her team of people, what would it take for you to be happy? How much money would it take? It's just a little bit more? Or what is it? So they went to people who made $30,000. Are you happy with your salary? No, 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 no. What would it take for you to feel rich? What would it take for you to be happy? 50 grand. So they went to people who made 50 grand. Are, do, do you feel rich? No. What would it take for you to feel happy? What would it take for you to feel rich? 100 grand. If you're anything like me and you went to public school, you can see the pattern. They went to people who went 100, and of course they said no. What would it take? And they kept going, and they kept going. They eventually went to people who had 400 to 500 million dollars in assets. And they asked them, Are, do you feel rich? And they said no. And said, so what would it take? They said, a billion. What's the big idea? It's always in our hearts to always want more, always want a little bit more. Even we're never content with what we have. We are never satisfied. We always want a little bit more, believing just a little bit more. And that's what's gonna quench our thirst. And what they actually found, which was so remarkable, that they said that the person that was making $75,000, that was the optimal amount of money for satisfaction. Crazy that any amount of money that you made past that was just perceived happiness. It wasn't real. Because we believe this lie of, if I just had more. And then Jesus being so wise, not because he's a philosopher, not because he's a good teacher, but at Grumlaw, we just believe he's God in the flesh and his wisdom still rings true 2,000 years later. Look what he says in Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 16. And he told them this parable, he being Jesus, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. What is he saying? The guy in the story was saying, if I just had a bigger barn, if I just had more grains, if I just had more surplus, then I'd be happy. I could relax and live the good life. If I just had a little bit more. And we say this in our culture. It's not even about money. We say, God, if I just lost 20 pounds, I got this tire around my waist. God, if I just gained 20 pounds, I'm going to the gym, I still look small. God, if I 
I love you. I'm single. I'm ready to mingle. Just me, Lord. I'm a woman. It's just me and my cat and my blog. Maybe it's a video blog now. If I just was married, then I'd be happy. And then there are married couples who are blessed, have everything, and, they, and they, in their heart they say, God, we just had a little one. You can talk to every parent in America, and they say, Lord, we prayed for these angels, and when these demons can wipe their own butt, Lord, when they get potty trained, that's when we'll be happy. Talk to anyone in high school. It's God, when they move out and they're in college, that's, Lord, that's when I'm going to be happy. And then when they're in college, like, God, when am I going to be done paying for their college? Just putting me out of house and home. And then, what's so crazy, you talk to parents whose kids graduate and they come back, Lord, would you send them out the second time? Because like a boomerang, they came back. It's the, always that idea, if I just had that, if I just accomplished this, if I just achieved that, then, oh, then I'd be happy. Look what Jesus says. Look at his words in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. What's the big idea? He's saying more things are not going to satisfy you. More, more of those stuff, more things and things will not quench the thirst that's in your heart. The very thing you need are the riches that come from God. Today I want to give you four pieces of advice, four things on how to be dissatisfied. And again, this is, I'm going to give you bad advice. And the idea is as I'm giving you this almost sarcastic bad advice, it will highlight the good news, the good godly advice. So I want to speak to some people at Grumlaw Church this morning, whether you're on a physical campus or online, and life is good right now. You're not sick, you have a family, you have a church family, you're part of a community that's not only change your life, but it's changing that community in Michigan. It's amazing to be part of something bigger than yourself. And you want to flush all of that down the toilet, take notes right now. And I say this all the time to my church. If you want to go to heaven, you're more likely if you take notes in church. People are like, Pastor Ali, what do you mean by that? Yeah, you're 95% more likely to go to heaven if you take notes in church. I don't know where I heard that. It's just, I heard it in seminary. It's true. So point number one, if you want to live a life that's dissatisfied, point number one, focus on being ungrateful. Focus on being ungrateful. Look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. He says, Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. No, who wants to do that? I don't want to thank God always and pray continually. I want to complain in all circumstances. I want to gripe in all circumstances. I want to find fault in all circumstances. I want to harbor a deep spirit of ungratefulness. I want to complain about what the things God didn't give me and complain about the things God's giving other people that I think I should deserve. When you see someone blessed, complain and just remind yourself you're better than them, that their spouse is ugly and their kids are too. When they have a new car, like they probably overpaid for it. Their interest rate must be super high. When their clothes are nice, they pay too much. When they got the promotion at work, just remind yourself they probably lied and stole and cheated their way to the top. You want to be jealous. You want to be critical. You want to be envious and complain about the blessings that you see in the lives of other people and especially you want to complain about what God didn't give you. God, how could you give them that and not me this? Don't, you need to complain about your small house, about your wife and your kids, the things that aren't as great as they should be. You want to be, number one, ungrateful. Number two, if you're taking notes, is you want to compare what you have to people who have more. 
These are the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, He said, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare with themselves, they are not wise. We don't want to be wise. We want to be foolish. We want to compare everything we have with people who have more. Wives, you want to, if you, you want to look at your home that's so small and puny and you want to go on HGTV and binge watch all the homes that are Pinterest worthy. Then you want to go to your closet that looks like it came out of storage wars. And then you want to go on HGTV and look at all the homes that are curated, perfect, perfect and just put together magically. Then you want to compare appliances. Oh my gosh, you have a top load washer? How do you sleep at night? Because everyone in America has a front load washer. Oh my gosh, when you're at church, did you see the way that that guy opened the door for her? Oh, I can just tell. I can, I can just tell. He's, a, he's an Ephesians 5 husband. I bet he, he, he's just dying all over the house for her. Hey, husbands, you need to compare. Hair on your head, cars, your salary, everything. Your kids, especially your kids. Your kids are demons. Their kids are angels. Your kids show up at the dinner table and say, Mom, I'm not hungry. I want a snack right now. What? You need to compare wives. Did you see the way that she said thank you? Did you see the way that she handed him a pen? Oh my gosh, I could, I could just tell. I could just tell. She's a Proverbs 31 wife. I could just tell. She's just submitting all over the place. I bet they have sex all the time. I bet she never says no when he asks. Compare always. What you want to do if you want to live a life that's dissatisfied, number one, you want to be ungrateful. Number two, you want to compare what you have to what other people who have more. And number three, if you're taking notes, is you want to pursue the temporary possession over the eternal treasure. You want to pursue the temporary over the eternal. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. He says, watch out. Someone say, watch out. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Let me tell you why that is so significant. Because in the Gospels, Jesus only says, watch out to one kind of sin. He doesn't say, watch out to pornography. He doesn't say, watch out for adultery. He doesn't say, watch out for murder and lying and stealing. Why? Because you know when you're doing those things. He only says watch out to greed because no one thinks they're greedy. I've been pastor for 10 years now. I've heard every confession you can think of, from adultery to abortion to drugs, the craziest things happen in Silicon Valley. I've never in 10 years had someone tell me they're greedy because no one thinks they are, which is why Jesus says watch out because you probably don't think you are. Watch out! Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's stupid. Didn't you see Fight Club Jesus? We are the jeans that we wear and the car that we drive. Our life is defined by our possessions, possessions, possessions. Don't care about people. Don't care about eternity. Don't care about making a difference. Care about yourself. Care about you. Numero uno. Now it, living for yourself is the most important thing. More is better. Bigger is better. Now is better. Don't live for the eternal. Live for the right now. And number four, if you're taking notes, you want to live a life that's dissatisfied. Number four is develop an attitude of entitlement. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. What is he saying? That because of the consequences of our decisions, because of the choices that we make, because we're disobedient with God, and selfish with other people. The consequence of that is death. Phooey, <laughs> no. 
We deserve more. We had bad parents. We had ugly siblings. Our, our kids are rebellious. We deserve more. We deserve new shoes, a new outfit with those new shoes. We need a new car, a new gun, new dogs, new everything. Because we want to develop a spirit of entitlement. We deserve it. When you go home today, after work tomorrow, I mean, and you're driving home, complain about you're not paid enough by your boss. When you're sitting in your car that has terrible gas mileage, right? Doesn't have a, a car heater seats that have car seats that have car heaters, you'll want to complain as soon as you park in your garage, which is really just a home for your car, about how it, it, it costs too much for your home. As you walk into your climate-controlled house and turn on Netflix, complain about the Wi-Fi. Then in the morning, when you get ready for work, touch all the clothes in your closet and declare, I have nothing to wear. If you want to develop a spirit of entitlement, to be dissatisfied. You gotta be ungrateful. You gotta compare everything that you have against other people. You gotta pursue the temporary versus the eternal, and you gotta develop a deep sense of entitlement. Can I just a time out for a second? That is so hard to lie to you, Grandma. Like, that's all stuff I don't want you to do. But I needed to give you the bad advice because I wanted to highlight the godly way of living. Because often, when we evaluate each other's lives, it looks like we're taking bad advice. And often, instead of being more grateful for the things that God gives us, we become more ungrateful, more entitled, and we compare with what we feel God should have given us because we just want a little bit more. We just think, if I had a little bit more, then I'd be satisfied. Nowhere is this more true in Silicon Valley. Let me explain. The average salary in Silicon Valley is $120,000. The average salary in America, fifty-five. The reason why I tell you this is because the average person in America, their charitable contributions are 3%, which is great, by the way. That's how much money they give the church, the Blue Cross, some, let's say, national disaster. They give, on average, 3% of their salary. Do you know what the people in Silicon Valley make, give? 1.7%. That means we make twice as much as the average American, but we give almost less than half of what they do. Why? Because often when you get more, you become more ungrateful. Uh, one of the things I want to do as I wrap up these last four weeks of this collection of talks is I want to give you one big idea that kind of loops all the last four weeks together with one big idea. And often it, it's really settled around this idea that the, the, the what you believe doesn't really matter. It's how you live that reveals what you believe. For example, my professors in seminary would say, Pastor Ali, come on. Don't teach me on the theology of your love. Show me your theology. Because your actions speak louder than your words. The way that you live reveals what you really believe. Because listen, the devil knows the Bible inside and out. He's been reading it for a long time. He doesn't obey any of it. Knowledge is not going to change your life. It's obedience in those areas of what you believe. The what you live reveals what you really believe. And you and I would never say this phrase, but by the way that we live, we're communicating this. And the big idea is this. What Christ offers is not as good as what this world offers. Let me repeat that again. What Christ offers is not as good as what the world offers. In week one of this collection of talks, we talked about how we drift from God. And often we, we want to chase shiny things, a new car, a new this, and those shiny, shiny things make us drift from God, thinking that that thing is going to satisfy me. We'll never say it, but what we believe is what Christ offers is not as good as what the world offers. 
In week two, we talked about how to become an addict. That often, when life is stressful, when we're under pressure, especially during this pandemic, depression is up, anxiety is up, suicide is up. It's so bad in Silicon Valley where we live that the county stopped giving out the suicide numbers. It's so bad. Because the pressure of being in isolation for so long, the pressure of this economic downturn is hurting people. And often, instead of coming to God, who can give you a peace, the Bible says, that surpasses understanding, which is supernatural, doesn't even make sense, we go to a bottle. We take pills, or we drink something. I've heard this so many times from my friends. Oh, man, I've had a hard day at work. I need a, a beer. Do you really need one? Because we won't say it, but by the way we live, what Christ offers is not as good as what the world offers. And last week we, we talked about how to commit adultery. That often when we stand before uh, our spouse and say, I do, we're not just saying in front of our friends, we're not saying in front of a pastor, really we're making a covenant with our God. And we're promising Him, this is your design for intimacy. This is where we're supposed to have sex. In the context of marriage, one spouse, one for keeps forever. But often we, we find that we're not satisfied in our marriages. Instead of being fulfilled there, what Christ offers is not as good as what the world offers. So we develop emotional relationships that are unhealthy with other people. We develop addictions to pornography, trying to meet our needs outside of our marriage. And sometimes we do it illicitly. Why? Because what Christ offers is not as good as what the world offers. And today we're talking about how to be dissatisfied. That, that we believe the life. I just had more. If I just had more, more p- paycheck, if my 401k was just bigger, if my car was bigger, if my house was bigger, if I just got that promotion, then I would be satisfied. And the big idea is that it, it, you won't. And if I can encapsulate what the solution is, how, how do we fix this problem of being dissatisfied? One of my mentors, he has this great quote, And it comes out of this thought from Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3. And it says, gratitude takes what I have into enough. You should write that down. Gratitude takes what I have into enough. And it's not that happy people are grateful. Listen, it's grateful people who are happy. Let me read you Ephesians chapter, Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Paul the Apostle says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. If you know Paul, who he is, this guy was a super apostle. This guy planted churches all along the Middle East. Whereas Shay and I planted one church, this planted like 12 or 13 churches. This guy is like the, the hero of our faith. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was all about accomplishments, all about accolades and titles, what he had done and who he was. And he says all of those things, All those things that I thought were so important, they're a complete loss for the sake of Christ. How often do we think our Instagram followers, how often do we think our our big bank account, our, our 401k, the size of our car, the kind of car we drive, the kind of jeans we wear are so important. Paul is saying if you get this truth in your heart, all of those things are a loss in comparison to knowing God. And the longer I walk with God, the more I realize how true His words are, how obvious it is that I've been chasing things of lesser value that are temporary and he continues he says in verse 8 what is more I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ 
for just a moment, I want to speak to you about this idea of knowing, because Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. See, I came out of Islam. I got saved at 24. My sister was the primary reason she shared her faith with me. And at 24, I accepted Christ. And when I came to Christianity, it was shocking to me that God wanted a personal relationship with us. See, in Islam, you feared God, you obeyed God, and you served God, but you never knew God. He was this distant person that you never knew intimately. Yet in the Gospels, I would read how Jesus was a friend of sinners. He ate with people who didn't want to go to church. He hung out with people who would never be caught dead around religious people. And I said, that guy is God. And it was Psalm 23 that says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. For some reason, that verse melted my heart because I didn't know God wanted to walk with us, that he wanted to know us intimately. What Paul is saying is that God is not a person to be studied. He's a person to be known and experienced. Imagine for a moment I went to a bookstore before I was married, browsing through leadership books, which I love to read, by the way, and I found a book called Yasmin Salavi, which was my, my wife's name before she married me. Her name was Yasmin Salavi. Imagine I'm going through this book, like chapter one, She's an amazing cook. Chapter two, she, she's a fashion designer. Wedding, chapter three, she's a wedding photographer. Like, man, this is amazing. Chapter four, what happens in the bedroom? Can't show you that chapter. That's for me. I'm going to bookmark that one. It's my favorite chapter in the book. And as I'm reading this chapter, learning about my wife, that's head knowledge. But then imagine for a moment, I marry her. Now I'm living with her. Now I'm doing life with her. Now I'm experiencing her. The knowing is different. God doesn't want you to study him the way that you read a book and you learn about someone. He wants to do life with you. He wants to know you. He wants to walk with you. And Paul is saying, when you know Christ, that makes everything else garbage. That makes everything else a lost in comparison to knowing him. And that's what I want to get in your heart today. That all the things in this world, they are alluring. There is a, a pull towards them. But knowing Christ is far surpassing. And what's even crazier, if you look at this verse, when it says, I consider them garbage. Someone say garbage. That word that's translated in the English, not that it's wrong. Please don't think that the Bible has errors, which it does not. That the, the original language of Greek often is way more robust of a language than English. For example, there are four Greek words for love. There's a love for unconditional love, agape. There's a love for two lovers, eros. There's a love for friends, phileo. There's four kinds of love in Greek, but all of them in your Bible are translated love because we don't have those different words. This word is exactly the same way. It is translated garbage, but there's another way of interpreting it, another way of looking at it. That doesn't change the meaning, just gives deeper richness to the meaning. The better translation is human waste. To every parent like myself who has four-year-olds, when I ask my two-year-old, honey, Zoe, is there poo-poo in your, in your diaper? She goes, yeah, dada. That's what Paul's saying. Saying all those other things, the Instagram, the, the car, the, the, the computer, the house, the, the trucks, the guns, the, the, all that stuff is just poo-poo in the potty. All of that stuff is garbage in comparison to knowing 
Christ. I remember when I first became a Christian, this verse rocked my world. That this guy, he, he considered all of it a loss. And I would say this phrase, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. All that stuff is scubala. Scubala, that's the Greek word. Scubala into to knowing Christ. And I realized Christ is not enough. It's actually better than that. Christ is more than enough. That he is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the vine. He is the lily of the valley. He is the, the, the bread of life. He is living waters. He is my healer, my protector, my provider. He is my strong tower. He is my shield. He is my great reward. He is everything that you need him to be. He, Jesus is not enough. He is more than enough. And yet often, we believe the lie. If I just had more if I just had a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. You don't need more to be satisfied. You don't need more things. You need more of Jesus. This is why John in, Jesus in John chapter 17 says, and this is eternal life. You should know Him. We don't need more things. We need more of Jesus. And just as Paul had this epiphany, this revelation, this spiritual breakthrough. I'm believing that Grumlaw Church, there are people listening to me in a physical campus and an online campus that are having a spiritual breakthrough right now. That your whole life has been marked by this more and more and more. And I tell you, it is all scubula. It is all considered a loss. So the surpassing knowledge of knowing Him. Not knowing Him here, but knowing Him intimately here. That Jesus is not enough. It's better than that. He's more than enough.